As I mentioned um, earlier, we're in a series that talks about the glories of our salvation. And that's what Paul does as he sits down and we open this circular letter. We see the glories of our salvation for three chapters. A remarkable story. An edge of the seat kind of story. And then when we get to chapter 4, there's a shift. We've talked about that for a couple of weeks. Beginning with verse 4, he's not talking about the glories of our salvation. He's talking about how we give glory or how we render glory is an old word for it. How we render glory to God through the lives that we live. That's the shift. And we talked about this grand story of three chapters. And now when we get to this part, our lives are supposed to match. It's what he called live a life worthy of the gospel. Not that we earn it or we deserve it, but to live a life in accord with, of equal weight, that our lives show something. And last week, what we saw in, <clears throat> from these previous verses uh, in chapter four prior to this, is we saw that that, that call is a call to unity, and now we're about to see that it's a call to purity, a call to unity because God is one, a call to purity and, or holiness because God is holy. And so we dive in, and for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at what does it look like to render glory to God through the lives that we live. And one of the things you're going to see starting today is that we render or give glory to God when we display in our lives the change that the gospel makes. And embedded in that is a promise that you can change. Someone wisely said the Bible isn't wasn't given to us to simply inform our minds, but to change our, change our lives. And we see it here. It doesn't change our lives until it informs our minds, but it doesn't stay with abstract cognitive categories. It's to land in our lives and make a difference. And that's what Paul is pushing us into, taking us by the hand and taking us with him into this arena of living in such a way in light of the truth so that real change takes place. We're going to see, just with the time that we have, <clears throat> what needs to change about us, why that's important, and how it happens, how real change takes place. That's what we're going to see. Starting as we look at verse 17, Paul is shifting gears now, and he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Actually, <clears throat> that could be translated, I tell you this and insist on it. You know, as a rule, and it's just a rule, just common observation. Maybe you could, you try this, test this one out with me. As a rule, we don't do very well with must. We don't, we don't respond very well to anyone saying you must do this. Because our response, what's your response to that? Our response is typically, well, what are my options? Uh, I hear what you're saying, but, but is there another way to get at what you're talking about? We like to forge our own way. And when someone says must, we think, hmm, 
Really? Must? Or maybe somewhere back beneath that is, who says? It's not just adolescents either <laughs> you know, that, that learn to ask that question. We're all very good at that one. We're cautious when it comes to the word must. We would rather have something else that included options. You know, maybe you've observed this too, that the things that are important are seldom urgent. Maybe you've heard that before. It's really true. The things that are important are seldom urgent. And the things that are urgent are not always important. But what Paul is saying here with these words, I tell you this and insist upon it, that this is something that is both important and urgent at the same time. That's why we move into it with him. And when he says, I, you must do this, I insist on it, he, he's real careful to not leave that dangling out there as Paul's tips for living. That's sometimes how we look at the Bible. We come to it for tips for living, tips for relationships, good advice. Paul says, I insist on this, I testify to this in the Lord. He's rooting his must in the character and the promises and the reality of the Lord. It's not Paul's advice. He says, I say to this, I testify in the Lord. It's both important and urgent. So what is it that needs to change? That's the rest of verse 17 when he says, <clears throat> here's what needs to change, church, Ephesus. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's talking right off the bat there <clears throat> about the direction that our lives take. The way that the Gentiles walk, that's not your walk. That's not your path. You might remember <clears throat> from a couple of verses uh, Sundays ago and the ver very first verse of this chapter where Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. I plead with you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Not the way the Gentiles do, but into a new way, a new path. I'm calling you to something grand and different. And then at that time, as we were explaining it, we used these words, a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is expressed in the form of a lifestyle, what the gospel teaches in the form of a message. A life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is expressed in the form of a lifestyle what the gospel teaches in the form of the message. That's why Paul has called us to something different. Not a tip for living, but an imperative. You must. Because what he's concerned about is that we would be living a lifestyle that expresses the effects of the broken world. That's what you see here. It's the direction 
of their lives. We're going to come back to that in a second. <clears throat> Frederick Buechner helps us when he says, when we were born into this world, a world was born into us. When we were born into this world, a world was born into us. A pattern of living, a way of living, an orientation, and that's the second thing. We must, what needs to change about us is our direction, but also our orientation. It's not just the path that we're walking, but the head that we bring into that. He's saying it's not just the things you do, it's the, it's the orientation you have as you do them. That orientation needs to change. That's part of what needs to change. The words that he uses about that are the futility of their minds. Futility. You know a little bit about futility. It's, it's, trying, it's doing something that doesn't work. It doesn't achieve the end. It's, it's trying to fix something that's broken and not being able to see any results. Like the refrigerator at our house right now, which doesn't seem to want to cool, which is what refrigerators are supposed to do. There's a futility. We thought we had it fixed three times. There's a futility that goes with that. The futility he's talking about here is an emptiness and a purposelessness a useless result, the confusion that results. It's like we've had a blow to the head and our thinking is off. Our orientation, we don't know where we are. You know, you can imagine the person waking up in a hospital bed and not sure how he or she got there. That's a little bit of the effect of the fall for all of us. That as we think, as the orientation that, that, we, that we bring with us as we live our lives is just off. The ancients, Greeks and Romans, used to believe that the passions were connected to the body, but reason and will were connected to the soul, which meant for them that they believed that virtue, if that's the topic, if virtue is the goal, was a matter of mind controlling the emotions. If you just outfought your emotions, you could be virtuous. But what Paul is saying here is that the mind is not the solution. The mind is the problem. The mind is the problem until God does something. Lewis Smead's writing about pride, which is a result of the fall. It's the heart of every culture and it's the heart of every life. It's the heart of your heart. It says, pride in the spiritual sense is the refusal to let God be God, is to grab God's status for oneself, turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his world, and wishing instead to be creator, independent, reliant upon one's own resources, where no one says must. turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life, to be a creator instead of a creature in his world. That's the direction we take and the orientation we have. Those are the things that need to change. And why is that important? 
Why do we need to change? I mean, change is hard. You've tried. <laughs> what is it? Why is it important to change? If the gospel is true, heaven is sealed, it's ours. Why do we need to change anything about our lives in this world? Well, <clears throat> he gives two answers. One's negative. That's the first one. In verses 18 and 19, he describes in very vivid terms the destructive downward path that you have left behind but follows after you. It's the downward destructive path you've left behind but follows after you. John Piper calls these words the surgeon's report on the human heart. This is what's the accurate, this is what the MRI reveals. This is, what, this is what we find when we take a close look at what's going on below the surface. Heart, by the way, you know, is not just feelings and emotions. It's the you that is you, beneath the skin, beneath the bones. It's, it's the thing that is, it's the operating center of your life. And what we find there is the universal condition of the human heart. Here are the words just listen to these. Let these roll over you. The words that Paul uses to describe that downward destructive path. Hardness. Darkness. Deep ignorance. Uncleanness or impurity. Callousness or lack of moral restraint. Alienated from the life of God as a result because he then turns from them. John Stott summarizes that section like this. Hardness of heart leads first to darkness of mind, then to deadness of soul, under the judgment of God, finally to recklessness of life. Do you recognize any of those? Hardness of heart, darkness of mind, Deadness of soul, recklessness of life. You know, it's very similar to what Paul says to another church, the church in Rome. Maybe you were even hearing some of these words from Romans 1. They became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You know, the MRI shows that there's more wrong with us than an occasional bad choice. There's a direction and an orientation that we have left behind but follows hard after us. One of the reasons that you recognize that I recognize those things in myself as I hear those words, it is, it, those sound familiar, a little too familiar. Hard heart, coldness, callousness. Is that <clears throat> what God has begun, the work that God has begun is not yet complete. That there are vestiges of sin, there are trace elements that, that we bring with us when we're transferred from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. We come as redeemed sinners, but we come with things still to be worked out. And that's what Paul is going to get to in just a moment. Worked out in, in the sense of 
displaying righteousness rather than unrighteousness. And that's where he's going. So the first reason that this is important is because of the destructive downward path. We don't want to go there. But the second reason is that we are to live consistent with our conversion and profession. It's two halves of the same coin. In verse 20, he says, but you've been changed. And then he uses three parallel expressions pointing to something in the past where he says, you learned Christ. You heard him, which is actually a fair and maybe better way of translating. It's rather than you heard about him, it's legitimate to say you heard him through the proclamation of the gospel. You learned Christ, you heard him, and were taught in him. And the reason Paul knows that, he was their teacher. You may remember that part of the story, that Paul's years in Ephesus, spent in Ephesus, which he describes in Acts 20, which we noted several weeks ago now. Paul himself had been their teacher. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul was with them and unfolded so that they learned Christ. They heard Christ through his proclamation. They were taught in him. That's why. That's why this is important. Because Jesus himself has been your teacher. It's Jesus' own words. It's Jesus' own life. It's Jesus' own example. It's Jesus' own promises. And so when you, church, are struggling with, is there something I need to change? Hear these words from Revelation 2 to the, church, the same church in Ephesus where Jesus says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You know, those are not angry words. They're sobering. They're pastoral. They're aimed at their hearts. And it's only when God's word, when truth is aimed at your heart, that it begins to take hold. Haven't you learned that? It's one thing to know the answers. It's one thing to know the truths. It's one thing to hear. It's another thing to to be held by that truth. To be captivated by it. He's reminding them that they learned Christ. They learned from him. And just frankly, personally speaking, one of the greatest incentives to change in my own life or the abilities to change anything is when I hear the voice of Christ calling me to something higher and better than where my broken downward spiral would take me. That's why it's important. So how does this deep, kind of deep change occur Yesterday, I was walking through a grocery store, and I saw on a t-shirt coming toward me the words, real change, in bold block letters, real change. Now, I knew what I was going to be talking about today, so I 
I was paying attention. I started to ask him, what's this about? But the closer he walked to me, I could read the fine print underneath real change were the words CrossFit. That's a promise CrossFit makes you. That if you step into their regimen routine, things will change. Real change. And I note that because we're talking about not just superficial or quick or short-term change. What is real change? I mean, we've tried a lot of things to change things about our lives. How's that worked? I mean, my list gets longer of things that, that I think should change. What is real change? How does real change take place? Well, there's a book that sold 15 million copies worldwide. Let's start there. It's entitled Atomic Habits by James Clear. Maybe you've read that book. There's some helpful things in this book, Atomic Habits, subtitled, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. I've not read the book, so I don't know how easy uh, those changes are, but here's what he says. I did find this quote where he says, every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. No single instance will transform your beliefs, but as the votes build up, so does the evidence of your new identity. Well, he's on to something there. We talk about habits around here. We talk about practices. There are spiritual disciplines that we, that we look to and turn to, and, and as we embrace those and develop habits in our lives, there are good things that come. But here's where, with all due respect... Uh, James Clear is missing something apparently very key because he goes on to say, if you're having trouble changing your habits, the problem isn't you, it's your system. Your system. Benjamin Franklin had a system. You may know this story. He, he set out, he identified 12 and then a later 13 virtues that he wanted to be true about his life. He listed those out and then he set out to adapt and change his behavior and his practice in such a way that one by one, each of those virtues would take hold in his life and he would be a different person. He wrote, my intention is to acquire the habitude of all these virtues. And he began his plan, was supported by his friends and his wife, Deborah. He was diligent about launching the project and he kept track of his failures along the way and eventually became disillusioned. He was a little disappointed by what he discovered about himself. He wrote, I was surprised to find myself so much fuller of faults than I had imagined. <laughs> he was growing in self-awareness. That's a good thing. And as we grow in self-awareness, one of the things we will continue to learn that with Benjamin Franklin, we are much fuller of thoughts than we had imagined. You know, <clears throat> For most of us, we've learned that the desire to change is not enough. 
a bestseller is not sufficient. But while the desire to change is not enough, it is where change begins. Hear that. While desire to change is not enough, it is where change begins. And there's where Paul rushes in to fill the vacuum. Because he's called us to something that we want to do and cannot do. So how, Paul, does real deep change take place? And that's what he does in verses 22 to 24. He says, put off. He uses a verb, verb form, to say you're to put off something. Um, it, it, it requires us to admit how much sin is still operating in our lives, that there's something there to do away with, to put off. And the only way we can actually be honest about that is with chapters one through three rattling around in our heads. When we're, when we're aware of the glories of our salvation, when we're, when we're wrapped in the truth that we belong to Christ and there's nothing that undoes that, then we can have the courage, maybe for the first time, to be honest about things in our lives that other people see that we don't. <laughs> but when we hear the criticism or we receive the suggestion <laughs> that something changed, we can say, you're right. That's more true about me than I realized. And Paul says, put off. He's going to quickly rush to put on something. But before we get there, you know, this is a, this is a Bible study tip. <laughs> this, is a, this is a way to read and understand the Bible. It's to see what the same writer says in another place about the same topic. Sometimes it's within the same book. In this case, it's not Ephesians. It's Colossians, where Paul is writing to another church. And where he's talking about the new self. And he's called about the call to be something that we are intended to be. And what, what God intends for us. He uses in, in, in Colossians where he talks about the same put off, put on. He uses a verb form that is an arrowist participle. Now, pardon me. <laughs> Hold on. An arrowist participle is referring to something that took place once at a point in time. So when he says put off and put on, he's talking about the fact that we have once put off something and we have put on something. And now we are to simply live, live that out, to live in light of it, live in the same stream of what it, a life that has put off one thing and put on something else. And what we've put off is that old pathway and we've put on a, the righteousness of Christ, which is a gift to you by faith. He's saying simply, recognize who you are and live that out. Put off your former way of life. Put off that life that is formed and shaped by deceitful desires. Instead, put on, in verse 24, the new self. Paul will go on to say in Corinthians, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is, you ready? Being renewed day by day. 
1 Corinthians 15, writing about the resurrection, he says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We shall. Not we might. We shall. We're being renewed. We shall bear the image. There is a work in progress. We're to put off and to put on. And you know what? You can't do one without doing the other. You can't put off without putting on, and you can't put on without putting off. They belong together. It's two things that are joined. You can't do one without the other, but you cannot do either without the key to this, which I'm convinced is what he has sandwiched in between those exhortations to put off in verse 22, to put on in verse 24, we find what we'll call the key in verse 23. Look with me. He says in verse 23, and you be renewed in the spirit of your minds. It's an unusual phrase. It's not found anywhere else. And it's left people pondering and theorizing what it is that Paul is after there. The best help I found in, in wanting to help you and us today <laughs> is that the spirit of the mind is a way of thinking that governs the power of our mind. Or the way one writer puts it, it's the disposition that governs your thinking. You know, it always feels neutral. It, our thinking feels neutral. But what's important to recognize is that we, bring a, we have a disposition that we bring to the thinking enterprise. We have an orientation, as I was talking about earlier. There's a way of thinking. And what Paul is saying here is that there's something, there's an interior principle that governs and controls and operates the mind itself. An interior principle. Something at work that Paul calls the spirit of the mind. The Puritans would write about this and talk about the power of the vision, the, 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 the things that our minds envision. That what we see with our mind's eye, and that may be exactly what Paul is talking about here, that the power to change, the power, the ability to put off and to put on comes when our, our imagination is captured by something, something true and lovely and beautiful. And every time there's any significant change in my life, and probably yours as well, it's when something beautiful has taken the place of something that is not Thomas Chalmers referred to it as the expulsive power of a new affection. That's a vivid picture just right there. The expulsive power of a new affection. When I see something that is worthwhile and lovely and beautiful and worth pursuing, lesser things don't hold the same grip because they've been expelled by something greater and more lovely and more beautiful. That's what Paul seems to be after. The way real change takes place in my life and yours is when something beautiful and lovely takes the place of things that are not. Where does your mind go when it has no place to go? Well, you don't have to answer that out loud. <laughs> but think about it. When you're, when you're not occupied with something, where does your mind drift? 
it can drift in all kinds of directions unless it's focused on something. And I think that's probably what's missing in James' clear antidote. You see, it's not just a system that we need. We need an object that is lovely and beautiful. And when that lovely and beautiful object or that person takes that place, ask the newlywed. Ask the new parent about the expulsive power of a new affection. Ask yourself, what is it that's captured your heart and your imagination? And Paul says there's something lovely and beautiful to hold on to. You know, it's kind of humorous, but the best <clears throat> illustration I've ever seen about that was the description of <clears throat> the man that made a trip to, for his annual physical. And, on, and as he left the doctor's office, he had learned that his cholesterol was now off the charts. He had to make some adjustments, diet and exercise, and oh, by the way, here's a prescription for a drug that will deal with that if you don't. And so on the way home from the doctor's office to the pharmacy, he drives down the road that he always takes, and this time he notices the steakhouse. And what made him notice the steakhouse was the sight of smoke coming from the kitchen. And where his mind went was the steak sizzling on the grill. So what does he do? Does he go to the pharmacy to fill the prescription? Or does he turn in to help himself to what's sizzling on the grill? It depends on which picture captures his imagination. That steak sizzling on the grill or himself lying on the floor of the heart attack. What is the picture, the vivid picture, that animates your life at any given moment? And Paul is saying that there's one picture, there's one reality that animates your life and leads to the kind of deep change, not temporary, superficial, quick fix change, but the deep change. And it's when you and I continually bring that vivid picture of the thing and the one that is most lovely, most beautiful, most, most worthy of our affections, that has an expulsive power. And it begins to change habits it begins to change practices. It begins to change prejudices. It begins to change defensiveness. It begins to change pride. It changes us from the inside out. The heart is the target, says Paul Tripp. But so does the Apostle Paul. And it's your heart that operating center of your life that God is after, that he came for, that he gives himself to pursuing, that he is relentlessly in pursuing your heart and my heart. And when that is lovely and vivid before me, we begin to see the kind of change that we can't manufacture. You know, abstract truth will never change you. but the love of the Father will. To, 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 to know the love of the Father who loves you where you are, 
who's brought you to himself. He's transferred you from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. That love, that abiding love, that constant, eternal, steadfast love, that is changing. That is a change agent. It changes your affections. When you hear his voice and sense his favor, because wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, received by faith, Ephesians 2, you are his, and he is yours. And the change is underway. Thanks be to God. Father, would you help us to hold in front of our own mind's eyes the beauty and the lavish love of the Father that comes to us through the Son and, and revealed to us by your Spirit. The love of the Father the work of the Son, the, the operating of the Spirit in our lives to help us to see things that are lovely and true and beautiful in your face. The one who gave his Son, who was banished from that love because of our sin. But wrapped in him and his righteousness, we're home. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.